This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Ullman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, I'm joined by Bard MBA alum Heather Bowden, and we're speaking with Matthew Hollis, founder and CEO of Alitis. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, good morning, Heather. It's great to be on the call with you. Wonderful. So I just saw that Elitis celebrated its 10-year anniversary. Can you tell us about the company, the history, where you're located, and so on? Yeah, I would be happy to. Uh, 10 years was a big milestone for us. We were really excited to be celebrating that last year, and I think we celebrated all year long through various different efforts. But we were founded in 2007. Uh, we've always been an Ohio-based company. And so I, I started the company with my current business partner while I was a sophomore in college, and it was really with a focus on trying to bring efficiency to paper-based products in the waste industry. And so what we, what we initially set out to do was we initially set out to help large waste hauling companies reduce the amount of communication and reduce the amount of paper uh, that was being done in processes uh, to communicate with their subcontractors or with their divisions. And, and if you think back to 2007, I mean, the internet was around, but it was not as widely adopted as it is today. I mean, we have the internet at our fingertips on our phones. And, and at that point in time, that, that wasn't always the case. So it was a little bit of a different way of thinking. And, and we knew that we were a little bit ahead of our time when we started the company. But the main goal was, you know, there was a lot of spreadsheets. There was a lot of fax machines. There was a lot of, um, you know, paper communications that were being sent. And, and because of that, there was a huge time delay for those vendors to communicate to everybody. So we were, we were thinking, you know, we could really help put everybody on the same page, the customer and the waste hauler, if we were able to develop a web-based software platform that would manage that communication, manage that data, kind of manage that infrastructure, et cetera. And so uh, we set out to build that, and that's exactly what we built. And we started selling it to large waste hauling companies in uh, 2007, and we had some success with that as well. And, and we did that for probably the first four years of our existence. Um, and in 2011, we got to the point where uh, we had a decent number of adoption by uh, companies in the waste industry, and we were at a trade show, and we had a really large chain retailer come up to us and say, hey, you know, we're, we're taking a look at our operations, and we are really struggling with how do we manage all of these vendors across all of these stores, across this large geographically dispersed area, and still be able to track to what our goals are uh, from a sustainability perspective and from a cost perspective. And they said, it looks like your software might be able to help us with that. You know, could, could we buy your software? And we were like, well, but you're not a waste company. Like, you know, you're just, we're really struggling with that. And, and, but then that's kind of when we had this aha moment where we're like, well, you know, I, you know, how many large, you know, solid waste companies do you know? And oh, there might be 10 or, you know, 20 of them, but, you know, how many large chains can you think of? And I mean, there's just a humongous more opportunity on that side of the fence. So 
we pivoted the business uh, and we essentially phased out all of our solid waste uh, company operations and we quit selling software uh, to the solid waste companies. We retooled the software, it took about a year um, to heavily invest in the development and uh, re retooling of the, the platform in order to meet the needs of those chain customers and then we started uh, selling to them directly in 2012. And that kind of surmises the rest of the history from 2012 to 2017 and where we're at uh, today is that we do sell that platform to end users so that they can manage their waste from procurement to payment. Awesome. So um, I, I'd like, actually like to swing back to your under uh, to your college days, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. How, so you mentioned how you were a sophomore when you and uh, – was it Dr. Dillman first That's got correct. talking? Yes. So can you tell us about how that conversation went? Like, what were you originally working on at Cedarville University's Entrepreneurial Incubator? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, at the time I was in, so my degree field is actually in mechanical engineering. I do not have a business background uh, from a from an academic perspective. And so what was happening was, is, um, you know, I was in the engineering program. I really was not liking it. I wasn't enjoying my classes. I wasn't enjoying the content. Well, let's not talk about my grades or GPA. And, and we got to the point where uh, essentially I wanted something that, you know, I'd always enjoyed business stuff, and I wanted something that I could kind of, you know, dive into on the side while getting the engineering degree, and I thought about switching my major and whatnot, but it would have been very expensive, and I'd have to retake classes and things of that nature, so I thought, well, I'll make the first best business decision ever and just finish it. Uh, and so in doing that, there was an incubator at Cedarville where they start a business. And so they, you know, would hold competitions and whatnot to get into the business incubator, and so I went to one of these competitions on a Saturday at 8 a.m., which for, to their credit was like the best time ever because nobody wants to get up on a Saturday at 8 a.m. And we went to the competition and went through that whole process and they didn't pick me. And I thought, you know, this is a really, uh, this is a tragedy. So I wrote them a letter and told them they made a mistake and that they needed to pick me and put me on the team for this <laughs> incubator. And that, you know, if they would do that, then I would be happy to operate on a probationary period and they could checkpoint me at 30, 60, and 90 days. And if I'm not meeting or exceeding their expectations, they could tell me to leave and, and I would do so, no questions asked. And so that's how I got accepted into the incubator. And there were 10 of us on the original team, and uh, we there, the university was starting with that same concept that we talked about. I mean, the, the genesis of the company came from the incubator. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where it started, and, and slowly but surely, uh, it turned into the business that it is today, and the other 10 individuals uh, didn't make it. That's so cool. I mean, it makes sense that school's not for everyone, so become an entrepreneur. That's what I did. <laughs> right? You know, and, and I really did. I struggled hard in, in school. It was extremely um, structured and, you know, especially engineering and, and just very um, intense. And, and it just, I, I really did. I struggled. But I graduated and I got the degree and I put it on the wall and never looked back. Elitis exists to preserve the talent of your people, resources of our environment, and dollars in your budget. How does the latest deliver on this for your clients? That's a great question. You know, a lot of people 
when they get up in the morning, you kind of have to ask yourself, like, why do you go to work every day? Like, why do you do what you do? What's the, the, the passion that's motivating you to move to that next level, et cetera? And I have to say that, you know, my personal passion and the passion of Elitis is, is truly to waste nothing. And I think that that stems from a couple of different places, you know, but what, what we take a look at it is, is, you know, it falls into three buckets. And so when we go into a customer's account, Typically what we find is they've got staff that are having to call haulers to get waste services done. They've got to, you know, file contracts. They've got to perform bids. They've got to audit invoices. They've got to, you know, when the hauler doesn't do what they say they were going to do and, and they need an extra pickup or, I mean, they had a missed pickup or they need an extra pickup or things of that nature. You know, there's, there's just a significant amount of administrative time that is involved in managing that type of operation across several hundred stores across a large geographically dispersed area. And so the very first thing that we say is we say, okay, we can come in and implement our software platform, and the software platform itself is going to significantly reduce the amount of administrative time that's having to be spent by the customer's employees. And so they can buy the access to this platform, and it can make their employees just that much more efficient, thus saving the talent of their people. We take it a step further in that, you know, what, what a lot of our customers will do is they'll look at us and say, well, you know what would be really great is if you guys could do all of that administrative work, even on top of the software. But then also that would free our staff up to be able to get more strategic, right? And so what we do is we take all of the administrative workload off of the customer. Uh, we manage that on top of our software platform. And then what, what that allows them to do is it allows them to focus on, you know, uh, zero waste initiatives or diversion initiatives or uh, other types of initiatives that they've been wanting to get to but haven't had the time. And so that's the first bucket is talent of the people. And so we really try hard to preserve the talent of uh, the staff and our customers as well as our own, which is why we're constantly improving the platform to make our staff more efficient. The second bucket is going to be uh, resources of the environment. And, you know, we have one Earth. It's not like you get one and then you get another one. You know, it's, we have one. And there's only so many resources that we have on this planet. And so because of that, you know, we take a look at it and we say, you know, how are we using the resources uh, that we have? And, and, and we're not here to say that landfills aren't safe or that landfills aren't the way to go. Um, what we're here to do is say, you know, there's value in the waste stream. Are we doing everything that we can to reduce the amount of waste, reuse the stuff that are in the materials, and make sure that we're repurposing everything that we can? And so what we do is inside the software, we have a number of different reports and features that help to educate our customers on exactly what's in their waste stream, what's being thrown out, what could be repurposed, what could be reused, uh, and you know the other things that they're doing in line with those recycling initiatives. And so because of that, and because we're taking off that administrative um, burden from them, we're also able to go and say, hey, if you did this, then you could move your diversion percentage up you know, three points, and we think that it would be successful and have no impact to your store's operations, et cetera, et cetera. And so then we work with those customers to get those things approved and actually implemented for them. And because they, they don't have to do all of the legwork in figuring out the ROI and, and how implemented and what the process would look like in the training, it allows them to implement more of these types of initiatives in a much faster timeline, thus saving further resources uh, of the environment. 
And so then the third way that we help our customers waste nothing is in the dollars in their budget. And, and again, we've got a lot of customers that are under uh, pressure to save money and make sure that they're operating as efficiently and as lean as possible on their operations. And diverting waste makes sense. There's a lot of cases where if you recycle more or you pull things out of your waste stream or you do source reduction or you know food donation or you know a host of different things to to eliminate waste, it's actually going to have a double net effect, right? You know, food donation is a great example. You can get a tax credit for donating the food um, that's perfectly edible to a homeless shelter or to a food bank, etc. But then also you're not paying by the pound to dispose of it on the landfill side. And so because of that double net effect, it, it, it can really make a big difference on their bottom line budgets, thus saving them uh, dollars as well. Awesome. I'd actually like to um, touch on a couple, so the, in, the points individually that you made. So um, the first one you started with was helping the people of your clients by taking administrative burden off of them. And that reminds me of artificial intelligence and how a lot of people are talking about how it's going to do things like make law much easier or accounting. Have you guys looked into that at all? And um, for example, even in sustainability in the broader sense, we're seeing AI develop alien looking structures that use up to 37% less materials and have increased structural integrity. And so that's already a benefit we're seeing of AI in the sustainability world. Can you touch on that? Okay, so we as a company have been looking into all kinds of different automation and controls. I don't know that I would call it, you know, artificial intelligence. I think that that is the way that a lot of this is going, you know, but what we have to make sure is that we're we're programming the systems to make the decisions that to make them think the way it, that they should think relative to what sustainability is. And I, and I think that sustainability as a whole with respect to the waste industry is fairly new. I mean, it, it's been a movement for, you know, maybe about five to ten years now, and a lot of people are still coming to what are the standards, right? So how do you define zero waste? How do you define what source reduction is? And, and there's been a lot of really great movement on that. And as that gets solidified and those standards uh, become completed, then I think that's where, you know, the artificial intelligence can come in to say, hey, this is what we need to get to, and we may not know how to get there, but the computer can run millions and millions of calculations much faster than we can and then tell us, you know, where we need to go from that standpoint. But we as a company have been focusing on what I would call the very first brick to that, which is automated data collection, right? So working with sensors to just try and figure out how full is your dumpster? When was your dumpster emptied? Um, does your dumpster need to be emptied? You know, and, and being able to use sensors around those types of data points to collect information, bring it into the system, and then be able to give us uh, a, a host of ways to make a decision in order to achieve the goal that we're looking at. That's awesome that you um, program the systems in a way to have it produce sustainability metrics right off the bat. That's something that we talk a lot about in our sustainability MBA program and how to measure that impact. So it's great to hear that you started doing that early on and obviously have had great success taking that on. Can you Tell us what are some of the biggest wins that you've seen with this or that you've participated, whether it be with Elitis or the community, and what have you not seen budge, and why do you think that is? I think one of the biggest wins that I like to talk about is we had a, we had a really large university 
that goes through a move-in, move-out process. And I mean, you've got thousands and thousands of students that um, descend on a very small amount of space uh, in a university campus in a very short period of time, you know, and, they're, and you're turning over the dorms. And so what happens is, is you've got all this new furniture coming in with all of this packaging and everybody's un unpacking their coffee machines and their, you know, all the different things that they've bought. And so what the byproduct is, is that there is a, an immensely large amount of waste that is generated at a very short period of time in a very um, you know, narrow area of space, right? And so what we were able to do is we started to take a look at this. And, and before we came in, everything was going to the landfill. And it, it was driving um, the, the university nuts. I mean, they were just like, we can't, it, every time we see these dumpsters picked up, we're just, you know, our heart sinks because we know that we're sending it to the landfill. But at the end of the day, there are so many people and so many moving pieces that, you know, how are we going to figure this out? And so one of the things that we did is we started to take a look at what was the average pounds per student generated, right? So where are the students moving in? What's the nucleus of the students with respect to the dorms? You know, how much waste are we anticipating that they're going to generate? Of that waste, doing waste audits, what percentage of that do we think is recyclable versus, you know, landfillable? And what can we do about it, right? And so with all of those data points, we said, you know, the majority of what's being thrown out is recyclable. However, it's contaminated with random pieces of trash uh, that that are not the low-hanging fruit, right? You know, so you've got styrofoam in there. Yes, you could recycle styrofoam, but you're not generating enough of it, and it's intermixed with all of this rich cardboard that it's going to be really difficult to do. So what's the best way to do it? Well, the answer we kept coming back to was is the only way to save it from the landfill is to sort it. Like, you've got to find a way to dump it out, segregate it, put it into what's valuable, what's not, and go from there. The other challenge that they had is that because of the way the campus was laid out, it was a very urban campus, and so there was not a lot of space. You could not um, get trucks in there in the middle of the day because there's, it was gridlock while the students moved in. So all of this had to happen in the middle of the night while the landfill was closed. So what we did is we negotiated a contract with a nearby recycling facility who was willing to um, open up early, um, put their guys on overtime, provided that we hit certain goal points in revenue generation from the the material that um, was being recovered. And so we sent all of these dumpsters in the middle of the night to this recycling facility. They all got emptied out. They got sorted. All the weights from all of the materials got ingested into our system. Uh, and then whatever was left would then be carted to the landfill once the landfill opened. And so what it did is it solved the immediate operational pain for the university in that they were able to get everything emptied before 7, 8 a.m. when all the students would arrive every day. Um, it solved the sustainability goal that it wasn't all going to the landfill, and we were able to divert 60-something um, percent of what was being generated from the landfill. And then it also solved, um, you know, the, the ability to then take that material and repurpose it because that material was then packaged up, sold accordingly, and gone from there. So it was like, a, it, was a, it was a big win effect, um, and then we were able to take the data from that to then go back and validate our estimates, right? So we originally estimated this percentage of the waste stream was recyclable. Here's what it actually was. We were originally estimating that this many pounds per person were being generated. Here's what it actually was, you know, and so then we could use that data to get smarter um, for the next year. I am so relieved to hear that you guys are working on college waste because that was one of my big pet peeves going to St. Mary's College of Maryland and just seeing like, like people just started like burning couches for fun um, at my school because there were just so much waste. 
Um, and it actually reminds me, I just saw a pitch competition over at MICA, which is the Maryland Institute College of Art, where um, this guy is trying to start a business where they make cardboard-based furniture that's mm. all modular so that, you know, cardboard uh, uh, biodegrades in about four weeks, is it? And um, he's trying to get college students on board with just having all cardboard coffee tables and couches and <laughs> all and, sorts and of stuff. So that is a fabulous idea. You know, I can't I can't tell you how many times we would see brand new furniture, you know, hitting the curbs at these, um, you know, move in and move out events. And to the credit of this particular university, they had a furniture bank donation program that was very robust already in place. And so a lot of that was already coming out. But at the same point in time, I've been on a lot of campuses where that's not the case. And, and what, you, what I think people don't realize is, you know, we take for granted that it's, that it's fairly inexpensive um, to buy furniture. There's a lot of places where you can get a, a very reduced cost piece of furniture. But what, you, what you're not taking into account is what was the impact that it took to make that piece of furniture? You know, it's got several different materials in it that had to either be mined or forged or recycled from somewhere. You know, most most likely it was not manufactured stateside, so there was a significant amount of fuel involved in transporting all those materials to the factory. There's labor involved in putting it together, transporting it back, getting it to your front door, and and then you just burn it or waste it, and, it, and it, it's just it's sad. Absolutely. I just want to give a quick shout-out to uh, the student who's working on this company. Um, the company name is Vel Papel, V as in Victor, E-L-L. P-A-P-E-L. Um, so best of luck to him. And I so wish you the best of luck as well. It's definitely something that I'm glad somebody's working on. Yeah, me too. Um, so in, um, in an example of practicing what you preach, Elitis's headquarters were renovated to be a zero-waste facility. And, of course, we're seeing a lot of businesses and universities try to do that. How was that process? And how does Elida fit in or stand out in the Columbus business community? Sure. So I want to break that down into two buckets. You know, uh, the renovation itself was not a zero waste renovation. We did take a building and we renovated it using a lot of repurposed uh, materials. So we had a number of things that we saved from the renovation where, you know, okay, there was bricks that we tore out from a given area that we then reused in an office, right? There was windows that came from a, um, a restaurant that was being torn down that we were able to go in and salvage and then put into the uh, building and use in the design, as well as, you know, there were second run floors that we were able to take and save from the landfill and put into the utility closets. And so we did a lot of that during the renovation process, but it was very important that in the design of the building that we, we architected it in a way that we could eventually get to zero waste. And we have not been certified as a zero waste facility. I want to stress that point. We're not saying that we're certified zero waste. We're working on that certification. It takes time uh, in that you have to have a baseline year and then show off the baseline. But we were able to move significantly paper and so we went from uh, a prior office location where there were numerous printers and a significant amount of paper to everything is happening digitally. And, and that took a commitment from um, the IT department as well in order to make sure 
that the right people have PDF editors and the right people have the ability to sign documents without printing them and, you know, those types of things so that we could work through that uh, and, and get significantly reduce the amount of paper that we were generating in the first place because source reduction is always the best way um, to reduce waste, you know. And so, so we started with that, but then we also set it up for composting. Uh, we set it up for single stream recycling and we really took a look at our break room and bought uh, a significant amount of um, what I would call reusable utensils, right? So we have metal silverware, we have cups, we have a, a water fountain, we, you know, we don't have the bottles. Uh, we've got plastic plates. And so every time we have a company lunch or we have any type of event, we're not using anything that's disposable because we have all of the the um, reusable items in our kitchen. But that also requires forward thinking to say, well, then you're going to need a dishwasher and you're going to need this and you're going to need that. Um, just things that, that you don't typically think about, you know, especially with respect to coffee. Like moving in, we gave everybody a coffee mug and a water bottle uh, and a coaster and just stressing to them that, hey, we don't need the disposable items. Uh, we can use these reusable ones. And when you're done with it, your name's on the mug. Just put it in the dishwasher. We'll get it washed and you can use it again. And so it was, it was really thinking ahead that way with respect to the design of the building that helped um, set us up for success as we work on our zero-waste certification. That's wonderful that um, you were able to implement that kind of culture uh, because it is a real cultural shift to think about how we use the products that we use every single day. I, I saw in one of your LinkedIn articles that you were talking about how important it is to meet people where they're at when it comes to waste reduction and recycling. And you mentioned how schools have had success renaming healthy foods with more exciting terms, such as x-ray vision carrots, and how they also implemented express lines for students who get healthy lunch options. And then you also mentioned how Japan successfully got folks to compost with visible stickers of shame, which, fun fact, San Francisco also did and had great success with. Do you have any examples, uh, um, any other examples of meeting folks where they're at in your practice? Like what other incentives are out there, not just for kids, but for adults and businesses too? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've seen a couple of our customers um, implement things, especially around like food donations, a great example. You know, so they're putting up signs to show them uh, real life examples of people that were food insecure and were able to overcome that as a result of the donations that were being done. So what it, what it really helps people do is when they're, when you've got that loaf of bread or whatever it is that is unsaleable, right, but is still editable, um, and and you're, and you're figuring out what you're going to do with it, it really is a cultural shift, right? Because at the end of the day, in your operation, you're moving at a significantly fast-paced environment. And, you know, labor is one of the biggest costs in all of our customers' buckets. And so they're very sensitive to, you know, what extra workload are we putting on the staff? And, and the goal is to find the right programs and the right motivation so that people can make that quick decision, right? So they're looking at it, and the, and the way that it's been in the past is the easiest quick decision for something like that is the landfill. I mean, it's really easy to just open up the door, throw it into the compactor, throw it into the dumpster, never think about it again, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, but being able to educate them and have signage available that's like, hey, if you put it in this bin, you can save this person's life, right? Or, you know, maybe that's a little extreme, but you can help them overcome food insecurity, et cetera, things of that nature. We've seen a lot of success in linking the impact of that decision to help drive um, the cultural change. So it's not just shaming for putting in the landfill, and it's 
not just you know um, you know trying to get people excited about it, but it's really linking the human impact to say that you know there are people that can't eat, and by putting that loaf of bread in this bin, you can help them. Um, just to just to bring it full circle, um, you're talking about programming the systems to make and think the way that we should think relative to what sustainability is. And you also mentioned that sustainability as a whole it, it, to the industry is fairly new. And so a lot of people are coming to figure out what the standards are. And when it comes to zero waste, how specifically does Alitis define zero waste? So we really take a look at it, and we subscribe to the true certifications definition of zero waste, where zero means zero. What we see is there's a lot of definitions out there where zero waste means 90%. And, and really what our job is as an agent is we're here to educate and promote, right? So while we may subscribe to zero means zero, we also know that zero is a really tough number for a lot of people to obtain. And so if you walk in the door and you've got a, a, a client that's saying, look, we really want to get to zero waste. And I go, well, that's awesome. We define that at zero. Like you can almost see the countenance fall, right? Like, I mean, because they're sitting there going, oh my gosh, like that's insurmountable, right? And so what you have to do is you have to break it down for them and go, the best definition of zero waste is zero, right? However, 90% is also considered zero waste by a large majority of people. What you as an organization need to do is figure out what are you defining zero waste as with respect to which, which system are you going to use. Once they make that decision, then we go, okay, now let's break down, let's get it into the baby steps. So today, you might be at 10. Right, and so 10 to 90 seems like a lot, but we can get you from 10 to 20 by you know 2019 or 2020 if we make these small changes. So the real goal that we need to do is yeah, zero waste is the goal, but that might be the goal for five years from now, or that might be the goal for 10 years from now. And what we really want to do is lay the foundation to get you to an attainable goal. Because what you find is, is if you if you eat the elephant one bite at a time and you break it down into manageable chunks and you set a goal to go from you know 10 diversion to 20% diversion, you know, and they achieve it, it's like putting some wind in their sails. And then when you go, well, hey, I think, you know, let's, let's try and double it. Could we get from 20 to 40? Then they get really excited, you know, and then we start helping them with that. And then once they achieve 40, they sit there and go, I think we can do this, you know, and they start really diving into it and they start coming up with, you know, the, the tougher decisions and the, and the more strategic stuff that they can do in their organization to get people on board. And that's really what it's going to take to get them to zero waste. And once they hit 90, then it's easier to have a conversation to go, do you think we could hit zero, you know, and, and walk from there. Zero waste is definitely um, a goal that we talk a lot about at school as well and how it's really the, the hardest part is like that last 10%, um, just trimming down that last 10%. And um, I'm wondering, so, I mean, it seems like you're inspiring people to be so upbeat and optimistic about um, our future with waste and how uh, they can contribute to its reduction and reuse and whatnot. And um, I saw that in 2013, Elitis had some scaling challenges where multiple companies launched on the same day, resulting in um, some logistical, if, if not logistical issues. And for our listeners who are exploring where they fit in, especially those who are considering entrepreneurship, can you talk about um, your personal support or your uh, the personal resources that you've used to get through times like this? For example, have you had any recent scaling challenges? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It's the work that we do is hard. You know, I mean, I've got a couple of young kids, and they'll they'll ask me, they'll be like, "Well, Daddy, you know, why do you have to go to work? I want you to stay home and play." And I and I say, because, you know, the work that Daddy does is really hard, but the biggest thing is, is the work that Daddy does is really meaningful. You know, and I and I think that it's all about finding your passion and making sure that you can align that passion with uh, what it is that you're doing on a daily basis, because challenges are going to happen. And that was a great example. In 2013, we did. We brought on a number of customers um, the way we did not intend to align it all to happen at the same time, but it did. And it caused uh, the, the company a lot of just growing pains, you know, that we had to work through. And so we spent a lot of time focusing on, you know, re-engineering our processes, re-engineering, you know, pieces of our platform and getting it to where we needed it to go, uh, but also focusing on what does that look like in the future. So, you know, before then, you know, we thought, hey, this is where we think that we may grow to and we were blowing our expectations out of the water. And so then when we when we looked at it in 2013 and we said, okay, let's rethink this. What do we really need to do? Like we, we really upped our expectations for where we thought we needed to go and we planned for that accordingly. And so thankfully, since that point in time, we have not had uh, any scaling or growth challenges and, and we are um, consistently ahead of the curve. And so, so a lot of what we're doing in our budgets and in our um, forecasting and our software development and our hiring is that we're equipping the company for growth that we may not see for 12 to 18 more months. But when it comes, it, it's really easy to integrate into the organization. And, and for me personally, I've had to rely on, uh, you know, a number of different colleagues. I think that's the, the best advice I can give to somebody that's looking to start a business or that wants to be, uh, you know, doing something along those lines is to get some friends that, you know, are in the same situation or find some colleagues that are in the same situation because, you know, they can help you with that. Um, my business partner has been an immense mentor. Um, Dr. Dillman has done, has started several businesses, really knows the space really well. Um, you know, he's he's got a lot more wisdom from time than I do, and I think that's probably the other thing that I would say to folks looking at it is, is you know, try to find some people that have been through this and done this before. Because if you surround yourself with people that are in the same boat, you know, then you don't know what you don't know. I tell people all the time, I can solve 100% of the problems I know about, but I don't know what I don't know. And so at the end of the day, it's really good to have some some wisdom from the experience of time to help you interpret that and look at where you need to go. Wonderful. It's so important to surround yourself with the right people, especially when you're starting a business. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and um, I wish you and Elitis the best. Well, thank you, and I appreciate spending time with you guys. Any chance that we get to help convince people to waste nothing is a win for me. You can stay up to date on their latest news and projects by following Elitis on Twitter and visiting elitis.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, December 7th, when we'll be speaking with Dr. Nicoletta Pickle-Ravazzi, Global Technology and Sustainability Director for Dow Olympic and Sports Solutions. For our complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. BARD MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at mba.bard.edu.